Welcome to Creative Conversations. This episode is a conversation with a good friend of mine, Kelly Taves. We touch on her career in film where she works as a set deck supervisor. We talk a bit about her music endeavors. And from there, we discuss her foray into acting. At the end of this conversation, Kelly will be performing an original song she calls On and On. So stay tuned till the end. Welcome to another episode of Creative Conversations, brought to you by Omnia Theater. Today we are talking to Kelly Taves. She works in set deck, and she is recently starting a acting career. So we are going to discuss that along with some of her musical endeavors. Uh, welcome to the show, Kelly. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, so to get started, uh, can you run us through a little bit of your journey? Like, how did you get into the film industry? What took you to set deck? And then how did you transition from set deck into acting or to decide that you wanted to start transitioning into acting? Mm, this is a long story, but sure, let's get into it. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Um, so initially, uh, like I first moved to Vancouver about six years ago. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was uh, I had just been teaching and like I was working in a marketing position doing communications and stuff like that. Um, okay. But my brother worked in set deck and he was living here at the time. Did you go to school for marketing? Uh, communications. Okay. Yeah. So... Yeah, so my brother was in set deck, and uh, I don't know, just like every time I heard him talking about his job, it just sounded so much better than what I was doing. And I, <laughs> yeah, I just remember going and just getting so drained, even though it was only eight hour shifts compared to doing like the 12 hour shifts that I'm used to now. It was just yeah, to sit in front of a computer and just do the same thing all day, every day. And on top of that, it was just like crap pay. I feel that. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? Like, yeah, I've been on this road towards you know this like idea of being some kind of communications professional or whatever that was going to be but what i was like is a communications professional exactly well see this is part opinion. of the problem <laughs> <laughs> yes um like when i there, there's different categories of it so like for example when i first got into it i i was in journalism so uh I, the three main um what do you call it? Like the three main pieces of communications, I guess, would be like journalism, public relations, and um, info design was the other one that they offered. Info design. Yeah. So what that, exactly is info design? That was more like computer stuff. So like making brochures and more oh, than that, okay. but like, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Or example. like web design, that kind of stuff would be more under that and umbrella. And like the copy you would put on them? Um, yeah. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Okay. So, where was I here? Um, so, yeah, anyways, I had this idea in my head for a long time. I'd gone to university for communications and worked as a teacher and, you know, had this job in Vancouver for an education company. But I was like, you know what, like, just because I've come this far doesn't mean I have to keep going if it's not working, <laughs> right? Some cost fallacy. Yeah, so I just did a 180 and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to jump into film, see how that goes. Um, so the first job I had in film was, uh, in locations. As most of us do. Yeah. <laughs> Which is where I met you, actually. Yes, on Motherland, <laughs> season one. Yeah. That was a shit show. Yep. <laughs> um, so I did that for, uh, 
kind of off and on for about a year, I guess, and then started transitioning into set decorating. It was also like in that year period was when lockdown started, right? So we, you, did you come back from lockdown into set deck or did you start set deck before lockdown? I was already in set deck. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I did set deck and then been working in that for the last few years, I guess. And last year I was working on Alaska Daily and one of the other um, people in my department has his own indie production company that he runs. And one day we were talking just while we were working, uh, decorating some place. <laughs> and uh, he was asking me if I would ever be interested in doing indie shows. And I was like, well, you know, like I would. But if I was going to do an indie, I would probably not want to just do what I always do every day for my normal job. I'd want to do something more creative, like maybe acting or something would be fun to try. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I think I got a role for you. And I was like, what? <laughs> Nepotism, <laughs> man. Right? Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I can, I can just see it. So I was like, okay. So he gave me a role. This was last October. It was just a really small, it was like a 10-minute film kind of thing, uh, zombie horror. And... Uh, yeah, so I did that. I just kind of like got thrown into it and it was just such a cool experience. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of just copying the other actors, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's what acting is kind of, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. So yeah, it was just like a really um, inspiring uh, way to get thrown into it, I guess. And so then in January, when all the strikes started this year, I started getting into acting classes, and I've been doing them pretty much consistently the entire year up until now. I guess it's a good thing to fill the time with the strike. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've just been, uh, I guess, initially I was getting auditions just like on Facebook casting posts or um, there's different websites where they have just kind of open casting calls that you can okay. apply to. Right. Um, and then in August, I signed with my acting agency and... Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now is I'm just kind of uh, shooting short films and auditioning for commercials. And once film gets going, like, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, could you list some of those online resources for anyone listening that might be interested? Like, what are the actual names so they yeah, can absolutely. go Google it? Um, so the main one is Vancouver Actors Guide. Okay. Um, and you just go under the, I think it's just the auditions category. And a lot of it is student films um, and just other super low bid- budget um, right. indie stuff there's the, there is some commercials but like really again super low budget stuff are those projects like mostly just for credit or do they actually pay at all um which ones are, do you mean like the indie and film school project kind of thing the low budget stuff on oh those no websites? no it's more just like to get in there and yeah start making content get recognition have a yeah. portfolio kind of deal yeah that kind of thing so there's Vancouver Actors Guide, and then another one I was using was called Backstage.com, okay. which is, uh, I think it's like $30 for a year membership or something. Um, and they post, like, big productions that are, like, worldwide oh. sometimes, but so like, those ones are harder to get. But then they also yeah, have... I guess the competition would be a lot more fierce for a worldwide <laughs> yeah. production. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, a lot of the when it says worldwide, I was like, oh, forget it. Like, I'm not... Oh, why not? You've already <laughs> taken the leap of trying to break into acting. You might as well go all the way, right? Well, in for a penny, in for a pound. But the thing is, like, the more I started, uh, like, auditioning, 
like acting really the job is auditioning and you don't get paid for it right you only when you do get like a good an actual job on like a, a union show or even like on a, a commercial for a big company or whatever like they pay really good right. but that's yeah. just like a one payout and then it's a few more months or however how long it is of just like auditioning full-time So I had to start kind of being smarter about what I was applying to because I was like, I would have just been overwhelmed. You know Uh, what I mean? Right. If you're doing like 250 auditions and you get like one role, it's not really a good investment of time. Yeah. Or if I'm just like, you know, I'm just in the beginning stages of it. So I want to do things that are kind of in Vancouver, local. Um, I know I, I didn't have representation at the time. So that also is a factor that makes you look unprofessional (laughs) right can you talk on that a little bit like it it makes you look unprofessional and it's like a well-known industry standard that you kind of need an agent but in your Mm -hmm. experience so far like how much different has it made it how much has it improved the experience um so far it hasn't changed much because film still hasn't really picked up i guess yeah that's (laughs) yeah but the biggest difference i would say is just the types of um, things that you're going to be cast in. So like I was saying before, when I was applying, just kind of being my own agent or whatever, going to these public platforms and um, applying for things, it was it was like really like unpaid or like honorarium kind of jobs. Um, whereas with my agency, now the the jobs that they're scouting for me are like big paying jobs. So I'm not getting the jobs yet but I'm still doing the you know just kind of like my own like indie world stuff because I enjoy it and why not I've got the time and I need the experience right yeah and like I think a lot of actors even a-list actors like a lot of their best work sometimes are independent films and Mm -hmm. like I always find it remarkable when you get this film that ends up being extremely popular, won some film festival thing, and you look at the cast and it's got like three Hollywood A-list celebrities in it, and you're like, this film had a budget of $500,000. How the fuck did they get these people? Yeah. <laughs> it turns out a lot of actors just love acting. They just love making art. Yeah, and like, yeah, like um, creative power comes into it too, right? Like, um, like, have you worked on indies before in any capacity? I've done a couple PA gigs on indies. Um, I actually met Ben Affleck's brother on one of them. Oh, yeah? And uh, an actress named India Isle. India Isley? India Isley, I think. Okay. Um, on a an indie in Squamish, and it was... <laughs> this, <laughs> we started the day with a foot of snow on the ground in, like, a mansion in the middle of nowhere, and... This shoot was a night shoot horror movie. Mm -hmm. There couldn't be any snow on the ground. So I had to help special effects at the start of the day, hose the lawn with like hundreds of gallons, if not thousands of gallons of water to melt the snow. That was their solution for getting rid of the snow. Oh, jeez. (laughs) And they, yeah, just poured endless hot water on it. (laughs) And then after we finished melting all the snow... We had maybe like a two-hour break where we had some decent-ish weather in the sense that it was just cloudy and nothing else. Mm -hmm. 
And then it started torrential downpour oh. for the rest of the night until we wrapped at like 3 a.m. Yeah. So the lawn was already wet soup because we had just sprayed <laughs> hundreds of gallons of water on it. And then it started, like, the clouds started to pour hundreds of gallons of water oh, on it. So it was, like, everywhere you step was a puddle. Everyone was soaking wet. It, it was Not just... Not the best experience, it sounds like. <laughs> no, no. My other experience on Indies was also in Squamish shooting a Christmas movie in July. Hmm. And all of the actors and BG were wearing, like, big parkas. And you could oh. see, like, sweat dripping down their face. Worst. Yeah. <laughs> So my, my experience with indies hasn't been okay. phenomenal. Okay. <laughs> but uh, my friend, uh, Carl, who's hosting another one of our podcasts called What's Your 20, he mostly only works in indie land. He has done union shows, um, but largely in the, at, like as a PA or in the health and safety department. Mm. But in indie world, he's actually a second AD. And in commercial land, he's done some first AD geek. AD gigs. He's hmm. done, uh, I think, one indie feature as a first AD also. But he said that that experience was so overwhelming that he wanted more experience as a second before oh, he firsted yeah. uh, or went back to being a first. Uh, yeah, so, like, I, I hear tons of stories from yeah. them, and I always see the cool shorts that they make. <laughs> like, he does a bunch of Crazy Eights work. Um, but personally, I, I haven't really except for those two experiences, which is still a quite stark comparison of indie versus union land. Like, you don't have to work on very many indie or union shows, but as long as you've done a couple of both, like, you very much feel the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I guess I find indie shoots are just more collaborative, right? Everyone's just kind of there because it's somebody's passion project and everyone's kind of there to support yeah. them, right? Whereas union stuff, I find everyone's there for the paycheck. <laughs> Absolutely. So you kind 100%. of like stay in your own areas. Like a lot of people are miserable and I don't oh, know. Yes. The mood is definitely a lot more miserable on union yeah. sets, especially since a lot of the crew members, especially the old school crew, really try to push the idea of like department segregation. Mm. Like they don't, like, the grips always hang out at the grip stash. They don't talk to any other departments. The right. LX always hang out at the LX stash. Don't talk to any other departments kind of thing. And, like, nobody talks to the PAs unless they have to. Mm -hmm. They don't let PAs talk to any other department unless they have to. Um, like, they try to keep a bunch of people from talking to any of the background or any of the actors. Yeah, so just, like, for actors, too, it's, like, if you go in to do an indie, it can be, I don't know, like, just a, it's just a different different experience yeah definitely um mm -hmm. although as i'm saying this i'm like i've never acted on a union show so i'm like i should stop there well <laughs> in I feel to that. like acting on the shows is going to be a very different experience than being a crew on the show too because actors whether it's indie or union actors always get special permission special interest special treatment kind of mm. deal right like that's whether it's indie or union i think one of the first things that you'll find half of the crew, especially crew that deal with cast, say, is that, like, why do we treat these adults like children? Like, you absolutely baby them and coddle them a whole bunch. And, I've like, in the few actor conversations that I've had, um, especially in my previous uh, show at uh, A Million Little Things, I was the health and safety testing admin, so I got to talk to almost everyone on the crew 
uh, including the actors. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them don't even like to be babied. They're like, I'm an adult. I can take care of myself. Like, I don't need you coddling me all the time. Yeah. Uh, So it's just like, it blows me away that it happens so much. And I don't understand why it happens when it doesn't seem like almost anybody wants it, whether it's from the actors or the crew. You mean why actors get special treatment or not special treatment, but just like coddled as much as they do? Because like to some degree, special treatment. Sure. Like if you are in your costumes and it's pouring rain out, like, yes, Mm -hmm. someone needs to bring you an umbrella or a jacket because that will mess up the shot. Absolutely. Uh, But if you're not on set, you're sitting in the green room doing nothing. Why do you need an escort to crafty? Mm. or like should you get your tad to go get you something from crafty like you're an adult you can go up and get your own snacks Mm -hmm. that kind of thing like i see what you mean why i don't understand why that happens when it doesn't seem like anyone on either side necessarily wants them to be coddled that much Mm. i do have a little bit of insight into that i would love to hear it please (laughs) share yeah um yeah so i guess like with acting um like, obviously, there's there's parts in the day that you're not needed. You might have, like, hours, you know, to just kind of do your thing, and then you need to be on set at different times or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially, like, depending on the, the type of role you're doing, if you're doing something kind of dark, you're going dark. You know, you feel depressed, and you or you feel angry, or you feel um, whatever it is that this character is feeling in the scene that you're preparing for. So I can imagine, like getting into that space and really like being there like you're not going to want to go out and be around I guess people especially if you're like a celebrity and like that's going to be in the news (laughs) you know if you're like snap at someone or um just aren't pleasant you know it could really bite you in the ass later um and outside of that even it's just kind of like a safety thing for your vulnerability because as an actor you're just like constantly pulling out your vulnerabilities and just, like, showing them to everyone. So there is a certain amount of, like, protection that that um, deserves, I think. On the note of being snappy or an asshole to someone, Mm. like, I mean, this this is kind of a not related to acting or film necessarily at all, but more of, like, a human psychology thing. Like, even if you are depressed or upset, should you snap at someone? Like, I feel like a well-adjusted adult human being, even if you're feeling like shit, you don't just, like, go into the world and then, well, like, take you, it out on a barista. Of course you could, but it's gonna... You could. If you're, like, in the zone, why take yourself out of the zone to go get a granola bar? <laughs> when it's gonna... Like, everybody is there for your performance. If you if you screw it up, but you're gonna do it over and over, and everyone's gonna be like, oh, this is taking forever. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So if part of the performance is... The person is snackish going to get a granola bar might aid you in the scene but if the performance is to be crying alone in a bathroom getting a granola bar is probably not the right vibe is that what you're saying i think it's a little more subjective than that (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i'm not i'm not trying to say i'm just kind of like using those as examples to kind of explain to be totally clear i'm being a little facetious in how i'm picking out the, (laughs) the points but yeah um yeah, so let, let's talk about the states because that's incredibly important for acting. Um, mm-hmm. 
I think you were actually the one that told me that through your acting class, one of the most useful pieces of advice that you got was to understand that all humans are acting at all times. Mm. And like the best actors are simply the ones that understand that and know how to leverage it for their acting. Mm -hmm. So can you can you touch on those thoughts, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so... I guess like there's different um, schools of, of thought when it comes to acting, but just the the style that I've been um, learning is very much like if you are trying to make a, an expression or you're trying to uh, communicate an emotion, but you're focusing on okay, well when people are feeling this, they you know their their brow furrows, so I should I should furrow my brow, or um, oh maybe like they'll put their hand on their hip. If you're thinking about these things and doing them because you think it's what people do when they have that feeling, it's not going to read as authentic as if you just kind of fall into um, the moment and have, like I was saying before, like when you're really having those emotions and you're having that experience, the facial expressions happen and you don't think about them and they're real and that's what makes it good acting is that you're actually <clears throat> you're actually there experiencing it and feeling it um as opposed to trying to mimic right so yeah. you're saying that actors are excellent at living in the moment at least while they're on screen uh i can't speak for everyone this is j Fair yeah enough. like my own experience but i mean yeah. like you raise a very good point like yeah. if being in that moment or let's let's pull this back to like a if you are trying to portray an emotion like you said it's it's never going to feel authentic or believable right but if you if you really insert yourself into that character into that scene into that that emotion that that character is going through at that time with mm -hmm. whoever or whatever they're interacting with. Um, like if you insert yourself into that in a way that you are drawing on like similar feelings that you've had in the past. So it's like really real to you, but it's putting you in that moment. It makes it easier for you to believe that you are that person doing that thing in that moment, talking to that other actor or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, like, another good way to look at it is, like, I like to think of it as I'm not playing a character. A character is using my body as its instrument. Oh, that's very interesting. So it's like somebody is, is um, it's like I'm being acted through. I'm not, I'm not acting somebody. Somebody is acting through me. I'm going to pull this away from acting a little bit into my <laughs> spiritual belief. That's essentially how I feel like we are all, like... On this side of existence, we are all characters being played by the spiritual us that's, like, up there controlling us. So hmm. maybe spiritual you is an actor and it is taking control because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> that's probably it. <laughs> probably. We me. solved it. Your yeah. spirit animal is actor. Except that it's not that I'm, like acting my spirit it's i'm acting these people that i'm inventing mm. you know what i mean yeah I, well i i think that that's actually a decent segue into creation for me mm. i think is because like 
you are creating a new entity, a new persona kind of deal, right? And mm-hmm. what makes an entity or a persona or a character real? Like if I, for example, like I have a novel and in that novel, the characters, like they exist in my head. But now that it's in a novel on pages, other people can read it. If other people read about that character, now it's more real than it just being in my head, right? So if you can invent those personas on call as you're acting and you are displaying them to another person, like for at least a brief moment in time, you can effectively say that that is now a legitimate living persona. Does that make sense to you at all? Sort of. Am I getting like way too... You mean because it like <laughs> it exists within your mind kind of thing or within your well, imagination? It, it exists within your mind and your imagination, but in the sense, like in the... Uh, the while you're acting it out, you are bringing it to life because it exists in your mind and your imagination. But as you act it out, it now not only exists in your mind and imagination; it exists in the minds and imagination of everyone oh, who I sees see you. Yeah, and like effectively, uh, that is reality. Is like a, a shared perception of what is happening according to our senses. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. And like, yeah, kind of, again, back to just like actors having just authentic experiences in their performances to look like they're really a real person, really personing. (laughs) Right. A real person, really personing. (laughs) I love that. Um, Like, why why are people so intrigued by that? You know, it's it's like all it is, is is somebody else reflecting your own experiences kind of back at you in an authentic way. Right. It's like a, a special way of communicating. That's a fascinating thought. Yeah. Especially like especially when you take into consideration that an actor acting is not actually authentically portraying the emotions that you feel or have experienced because they're acting them, but in doing it in a way that is authentic to the emotions and the response, mm-hmm. it is uh making it more of a mirror that people can relate to. So even though it's, in a sense, not authentic, it feels authentic and relatable. Mm. Mm-hmm. Are my deep tangents making any sense at all? It's or landing. am I going yeah. like no, way I'm, off? Okay. I'm right there with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Need a sanity check sometimes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So. Now that we've kind of started on the topic of creativity, um, the number one question that I ask everyone that's going to be on my show is, what does creativity mean to you? Choices. Choices. Interesting. Elaborate on that. That's the first word that comes to mind. Creativity is, um, for me, I mean, in an obvious sense, like, it applies to doing, um, like, the artistic things that I do, like music and um, acting, writing, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but y- you're even like every every single decision you make, every moment throughout the day, you're creating your life, right? So it's like, absolutely. I could, you know, after this podcast episode, I could go outside, get in my car. I can choose where I'm going to go. What am I going to do with the rest of my day? And that's going to affect every day after, right? So every single choice you make in your life is creating a life in a world, whether it's the one you want or not, like that's something that you have to think about. And once you start thinking about that, 
you realize that you are actually creating all the time. You're just not always creating the things that you necessarily need or want. That's a very good point. I think a lot of people end up getting trapped in creating a life with hobbies or interactions or um, patterns that are just not what they want. And because of that, they feel like they don't have control over their lives. Mm -hmm. But the irony there is that they are the ones that have put themselves in that situation, which means that you have total control over your life. It's just whether or not you choose to take that control or if you choose to give it to someone else. Mm -hmm. A lot of people end up giving it to someone else or even just giving it to like television or distractions of some sort. Right. Well, and like largely we're not really encouraged to step outside of the lane that we've landed in, <laughs> right? Like, That's very true. Yeah, so it's it's hard, it's scary, it's intimidating to to do things differently than you're used to or to how you've done them before or mm -hmm. how people... Another big thing is just, like, the people that you're surrounding yourself with oh, are yeah, hugely influential massive. when it comes to creativity. We are the average of the people we spend the most time with. Yeah, I 100% like think that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, because if you're like around people, I guess if I just like, yeah, if I think of my own life, I've gone through all these different phases and tried like a lot of different things. Um, and it's it's always a different, different types of like pressures or expectations in different bubbles that you end up in. Expectations can be crippling. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so... Thinking back on uh, creativity meaning choices to you, mm -hmm. how do you leverage creativity to make your life better? And are there any examples of an experience where being creative, you feel, has made your life worse? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I guess, okay. Um, in terms of, yeah... Okay, so that question, I feel like I just, like, I'm now I'm just going to talk about the end of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that right. kind of, like, hit me when you were talking about... Um, yeah, if it hit you, let's go there. Can you ask me the question again? I'm sorry. I uh, So, in terms of creativity being choices to you, um, how do those choices impact the rest of your life in a positive way or a negative way? Like, how do you... Or not how do you, but uh, what would you say are creative things that bring you happiness and joy or mm -hmm. make your life better? And are there any examples of creativity making your life worse? Got it. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. So if I think if, if I'm uh, talking about creativity in terms of just like life choices, um, yeah, if you're like, especially, you know, when you're young and learning and you leave your your parents and everything and suddenly you kind of have to be your own parent and you're making all these choices and creating this life for yourself right mm -hmm. um but you're kind of like in your infancy of adulthood <laughs> very much so yeah so yeah i guess my own experience g going th from like that to now is just kind of um making choices without knowing, not having the experience to know when they are good or bad choices. Yeah, I feel like every young person 
can either relate to that or would deny it because they're not ready yet to admit that they relate to it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, but, I, but, so, yeah, so uh, I guess I wouldn't frame it as making my life better or worse, but it will impact my life um, with different outcomes. So, like, do I want to, you know, make choices that are going to make my life more difficult? You know, like, um, let me think of an example here. Um, yeah, like you have to take risks, I think is what I'm trying to say. Definitely. And if you're taking risks, you're going to screw up. 100%. You're going to, you're going to make choices, <laughs> but that's, that's okay. I think it's, it's not just okay. It's like important in the process, right? Because if you're making these choices that take you down roads that maybe aren't ideal for whatever reason, it's like, oh, I tried that one, not working. Let's try something else. Oh, this kind of worked. Hmm, maybe this, this is kind of like this. Maybe this, no, that didn't work. Okay, like, <laughs> let's try this other thing. And then collectively, like, these things kind of build and build until you kind of have a better understanding of yourself and just society and how the whole, how you fit into the system and um, how to, I guess, balance uh, ha- meeting your own needs in terms of just like financial stability and that kind of thing but also finding ways to be creative and have like real joy and peace you know so personally i like i'm of the opinion that creativity like being creative is one of the most important and pivotal things to being happy as a human being um if you are creating your life by making bad choices how would you say that that affects my notion of creativity as a source of joy like if you are creating life choices that make you miserable creativity is obviously not bringing you joy but i guess from my perspective the idea of creativity of like making things, of creating something new, um, that's the thing that brings us joy. So I'm curious from your perspective, in what way would creating poor life choices not associate with like positive creation? I guess that's kind with of an joy, awkward question. Yeah, it's kind of an awkward way to say that question. I'm I'm having a hard time thinking of a better way to say it. But <laughs> you know, I could actually even ask answer this just with acting creativity um, experiences that I've had, because a lot of the times, like I said, like when when I'm having these like going through these experiences of these characters, a lot of it is not pleasant, right? Like film and storytelling in general is very much about just like skipping the boring parts of life and just go into the the grit right it's like that's true the yeah. highest you're right the, into the there has to be it. a highest part there has to be a lowest part there has to be like you know all these little nuances throughout um so in order to create that entire beautiful story you have to go to a really unpleasant place and that doesn't necessarily have to feel um, like a bad thing, but it's just necessary for the process of eventually having like the 
a more um, meaningful ending or outcome. Okay. I, that's actually a very interesting parallel to make to life in the totally. sense that you... Like, I was thinking that too. As I was <laughs> saying it. I was like, yeah, it kind of goes everywhere. Like, you can't appreciate the highs in life without feeling the lows. And the lowest low that you feel will help you appreciate the highest high that you ever get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And it also just makes average feel great. That's true. Yeah. When you've been really <laughs> low and then you've yeah. been really high, average feels like a pretty nice place to be. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, I also find it kind of interesting that you mentioned the aspect of a lot of like shorts or acting roles or whatnot having to touch on really dark or like deep emotions. Mm-hmm. Um I recently watched a couple shorts that a friend of mine in Mexico made. She was a boom op that has also recently started to get into acting um, and directing a little bit. And uh, in Mexico, the film industry hasn't had a strike in the same way. So their industry hasn't really slowed down. Mm. Uh, But not that it was as big as ours. It's it's just different kind of thing. Um, Do they get like much American stuff down there too? Or is it like mostly Mexican They do get some American stuff, uh, but it is largely Mexican. Yeah. Um, Sometimes they'll get, like, a big feature that goes down there to shoot, or they'll get, like, a kind of mid-tier thing that goes down there to shoot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lower-budget stuff is all local Mexican stuff, and, like, the— I don't think there would be really anything low budget from up here or in the U.S. that would go down there just because of the cost of— Right, Like, taking certain crew down and doing— some aspects of that cross borders for an indie production is just Mm -hmm. not viable. Yeah, I was just thinking in terms of like how the American market just trickles into Canada so much because we get so much American stuff. It's not the same. I mean, it definitely is to a degree, but the American trickle effect brings different things to the Mexican economy from Mm. at least at least from what I saw when I was there this summer. Um, Like you very much still feel the bleed from America into Mexico. Like there's big malls everywhere. You see American brands all over the place kind of thing. Um, Like the town that I was in, Cuernavaca, they have like four or five huge malls. And one of the malls has a Ferris wheel. It's got an indoor go-kart track. It's got an ice rink. There's like a jungle gym for kids. That In the middle of one of the like um, just like plaza openings, there's like a giant ball pit with, like, a kid's play area. Yeah. And there's just, like, plastic balls everywhere all over the floor. One of the biggest, craziest malls I've ever been to with a random collection of everything you could think of. That's amazing. Um, But, yeah, so the shorts that she has made that she's sent me, like, they're all kind of dark. And I feel like a lot of cinema, like... If unless you're watching specifically like a comedy or a Christmas movie or a romantic comedy, mm-hmm. a lot of cinema, even action movies, like they end up having a very dark down vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny, like even comedies, like a lot of times what makes something funny is people having opposite um emotions kind of at each other right like if you have oh, one yeah. person in like a great mood and one person is just like so mad like it, that's funny but that person's actually really mad so like as an actor you're like i'm mad but this is it's funny but i'm mad <laughs> you know <laughs> so even like with comedy like still these like 
um, difficult emotions are still a huge part of making it work. Yeah, uh, there's a, a line in a song by the Dirty Heads that I love, and it's, um, you need both with the comedy and tragedy, one smile, one frown, it's a masterpiece. Mm. And like that line just hits me so hard every time because it, it's like back on what I said about needing the highs to feel the lows and vice versa. Right. Like a life can't be fulfilled if it's all rainbows and butterflies and a life similarly can't be fulfilled if it's just all dread and drear. Um, I think it's really hard for a lot of people to strike that balance. And uh, from my perspective, embracing creativity is one of the things that really helped me get out of my lows. Mm -hmm. um, like, especially when I was finding my way into the film industry, I was in a really low point. I had just been hit with like six months worth of bad shit. And uh, like just walking around Port Moody two hours a day was tons of therapy for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I still couldn't completely break out of it until after I found my way into the film industry and then started like working with creative people, meeting creative people, embracing my creativity. And it eventually like motivated me and pushed me to start writing my book when uh, quarantine hit. And like that series of events that just led me to the act of creating something for creation's sake. Like, I wasn't writing that book with the intention of selling it to make a million dollars. I'm not trying to get a publisher. I want to self-publish it. Uh, but just sitting down and writing it brought me so much peace, both with myself and with my friends and family, my life around me. And it taught me so many things about myself and the world, like not even considering the research that goes into certain parts of it. Uh, but yeah, just the act of creating things. And that's why I say so much um, that creation, I feel, brings us joy. Mm. Uh, and I'm actually very interested that your perspective on this has brought the lower point of what creativity could put into a life. Because that's not an aspect I think about a whole lot. Um, but it is a very important one. And it is definitely a big piece of the puzzle. Uh, but from your experience so far, how would you say or do you have any examples of or tips for how to take those low points and transition it into a point of happiness or some joy or just into something more positive? Like, how do you pull yourself out of the shit if you've just put yourself into a dark place for a role? Oh, you mean specifically with, with acting? It doesn't need to specifically be with acting, but I guess that I did kind of make it that way, didn't I? <laughs> so so your question is, how do I go to those dark places? Or Well, not necessarily how do you go to those dark places. I, I mean, I can. it would be interesting to hear your perspective on that, but I, from my perspective, I think like you think about an experience where you felt that way, right? And that helps you pull in, especially if you just like really focus on it. It helps pull you into that mindset. Would you agree? Do you have a different take on that? Well, that's definitely like, yeah, a huge part of it. Um, but, but yeah, what was the, the question? How do you <laughs> pull yourself out of those dark places? And is there a part of that process that involves creativity at all? Or like essentially how do you mentally recover when you put yourself in one of those dark places? Like on purpose? Yeah. Um... 
Yeah, this is like a, a, a topic of, of debate, actually, even just like among actors and like acting teachers and stuff. But um, currently, I, I think recently, just in the last year or two, there's really been a, a move away from doing, um, what do they call it? I think they call it substitution, where you like think of your own experience. And then, so if I like was supposed to get really mad and I was in a scene with you, mm-hmm. um, I think about someone that made me really mad and I get like all worked up. And then I kind of like, I'm like projecting at whoever that person was, even though it's right. you standing there. Yeah. So that is kind of phase, phased out. Um, really? Because, because of that reason, it's just like... Um, Harder to recover from? It's just not necessarily necessary, um, depending on what it is that you're pulling from. Like, it can really mess people up sometimes. Um, and, yeah, sometimes when people right. do play really dark roles, it takes a, a while to kind of find themselves... You know, sometimes re-level. they can't even with Heath Ledger being the right. saddest example. Yeah, that's a that's an example. Um, but uh, losing my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do I? Right. Okay. Yeah. So so that's kind of been. Um, uh, I think the idea is more to kind of like lean into imagination. Sometimes. So sometimes I will think about. Uh, I'll put myself in this this character's shoes and I almost just kind of like meditate on it and I just like imagine this person's world and I go through like step by step these experiences that happen. I'm like, oh, how did it feel when this happened? What was that like? I'm like, oh, like who is this person? And, you know, just mm-hmm. like you create this entire person's world and all of their experiences. Um, so that's a bit safer or it's considered to be safer that way. Or even just like you can still use your own emotions, but it doesn't necessarily have to be um, like substituting a real event in your life. Right. You know, so for example, I've had acting coaches that will um, get really intense, right? And like you're doing a scene and like everyone's really intense and maybe uh, you're you're supposed to like be really angry at someone or sad or whatever it is. And they'll be like, okay, well, what do you know? Like, what is this really about? Like, what are they really arguing about? Like, sure, maybe we're arguing about um, you ate the last cookie in the cookie jar or whatever, but we're like so mad about it. So obviously (laughs) we're not arguing about cookies. (laughs) Right. There's something deeper there. There's something deeper. So it's just like, okay, well, what do you know about somebody like screwing you over or, you know, um, or just like somebody lying to you or feeling manipulated or whatever it is. Like you can dig deeper into those types of emotions. So pulling emotion without pulling actual experience. Would that be considered method acting or is that something different? I think method acting um, is when you like stay in character all the time, even when you're not on set, right? Yeah. uh, So. But I guess the the parallel to me was that it, like you are creating this character and you are in your head being that character all the time. Well, I, I guess as you said it, it was like on set. But so that that would be the key difference then is that method actors, when they walk back to the green room, they don't turn it off. They're still that character. I think so. Yeah. And maybe like they go home, they go about their days. They're that character everywhere they go for the three months that they're shooting 
their feature or whatever it is. Have you ever tried that? No, I haven't. Do you think it would be fun, hard, or in- intimidating? Like, depends what's your what the character is. Oh, very fair point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've I haven't had the opportunity yet to really dive into characters that are that um, different. I guess like something that's it's really becoming obvious is like really all you are. The reason people are the way they are is because of the experiences that they have. Like there is absolutely, yeah. Like there is like an element of you know natural personality or whatever that people have. Um, but in terms of just like that—that's something that in casting, it, it's just like you know you can have two great actors, but this one they just are that person, and this one they're just they're a different person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, but in terms of just like really like. Uh, different types of mannerisms or like people that have really um, I don't know like someone I've never had to like have a limp or you know like some Mm. kind of physical ailment that I have to keep in mind so I'm thinking like those types of things if I was to go about my day would probably be a lot more uh, useful because it's like okay like maybe have a limp it's like oh man getting on this bus is impossible like now i know what it's like to get on a bus if you got a limp you know right um but in terms of the characters that i've done i would pretty much just be me in different moods that i'm choosing to be in okay um on the the note of the limp you know the show house with Hugh Laurie mhm uh, i was reading something at one point years ago about how since he acted with that limp for seven seasons, he actually offset ended up developing that limp, and it was like hmm. really throwing off his skeletal structure because the body will just learn and compensate. Yeah. Um, also, a, a random thought that popped into my head, uh, kind of on that topic, was um, do you remember Taylor, the number one from Motherland? Yeah, I found her to be one of the most interesting on that set because on screen her character was just like moody and angsty and like mad at the world all the time like always wearing a grimace always serious yeah but interacting with her offset like at crafty or in the green room or whatever she was just always a bucket of joy it's like bubbly just and... sunshine and rainbows and butterflies and like the contrast was so stark i like it always blew me away and it made me feel like she was an extremely talented actor because she mm. could switch between those two so easily um yeah well, i mean she's definitely way more experienced than i am <laughs> so oh i think motherland was her first like real show wasn't it yeah but she would have been acting for longer than that i guess yeah yeah she would have been auditioning and trying things out probably has some indie stuff or uh like skits shorts maybe yeah. even some commercial work or something she was also a musician actually she's from Kelowna or yeah, something she's like a country singer or something isn't she yeah yeah um which is a great transition into your music <laughs> what kind of music do you sing um or make i play the acoustic guitar and sing, I guess, uh, sort of singer-songwriter style kind of stuff. Are your songs mostly acoustic guitar? Because you also play the keyboard, right? Do you ever make yeah. music with the keyboard, or well, is it mostly guitar? That was actually a COVID hobby that <laughs> oh. I, I bought a, an electric piano at the beginning of the lockdowns, and I started just, like, 
learning how to play my songs that I wrote on my guitar on the keyboard. Do you use the exact same chords? Yeah. Like, I'm not really, like, I took piano lessons when I was, like, 10 or something for maybe, like, a year or two. That's but more I'm not, than me. I'm not, like, a piano player. Yeah. From I, my perspective, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but, yeah, essentially, like, how I, I learned later, just a few years ago, was just by playing the piano essentially the same way I play my guitar. So it's just kind of like chording and just noodling in the range of the correct chords. Noodling <laughs> in the range of the correct chords. I like that. Yeah. That's, that's a fun way to practice music. Yeah. Uh, so when you, like, would you, what genre would you say your music is? Or like, what what would you mm. call it or consider it? I guess something in the realm of like, like folk, country, pop. Um, yeah. Like all three in one song, or you That's do just the like general different vibe. I think. Okay. Yeah. Pop is such a nebulous genre because, it like, essentially, pop just means popular music, right? So, like, mm-hmm. technically, anything that was indie at some point, if it gets big, becomes pop music. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then it also has kind of a different meaning that a lot of people accept as just being like typically more upbeat or more lighthearted. Although I guess there are many examples of pop music that isn't. Mm-hmm. But um, like, I guess I'm I'm drawing that from the movie Trolls. Have you ever seen the movie Trolls? I did. Yeah. <laughs> the the pop trolls were always the happy ones in the group. Uh, I don't remember it well enough. Oh, it's a phenomenal movie. I <laughs> highly recommend you watch it uh, again to remember. Um, it's a very good, like from a writer's point of view, mm-hmm. uh, if you look at the movie as each troll being a different piece of your personality, mm. it is an excellent parallel to like dealing with your shit internally and learning about yourself and learning to accept different sides of yourself. Hmm. Um yeah, I had a lot of fun watching that movie as an adult. I watch it. There's also a scene, because like in the first troll movie, there's like goblins or gremlins or something, and they're like way bigger than the trolls, right? And uh, they have this old tradition where once a year, it's like called Trollstice, and one of the goblins, like the king goblin or whatever, will eat a troll. And it is, like, the only time that goblins feel happiness is when they consume a troll. Mm. And the way that that's portrayed in the movie is 150,000% basically just a DMT trip. Hmm. Or, like, ayahuasca. But, yeah, they, like, eat the troll, and then they just get, like, blasted with shooting (laughs) lights. Like, they're flying through space at mock speed. And then they just, like, see a bunch of crazy shapes, and they just go, like, wah. and then they wake up and they're like, that was so magical. Um, so, yeah, that movie is 100% just like someone's drug trip that um, they decided to turn into a children's movie. And after watching it, I decided to watch a few other children's like animated movies as like with that kind of in mind, like mm-hmm. looking for the messages that they're portraying, uh, trying to break down the characters into like different pe- per- pieces of people's personalities. And I noticed that. One, 
children's movies tend to, on average, be of much higher quality than movies made for adults. Just because of the sheer quantity of movies made for adults, there ends up being a lot of things made that are garbage. Mm. And adults will let themselves consume absolute garbage content, but they will not let their kids consume as garbage of content, which I find Mm. very interesting. That is interesting. Uh, Also, like, the kids just wouldn't pay attention. That's very true. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Whereas when adults are watching TV, they're kind of just like zoning out half the time, right? Like thinking about other things. Very true. Very true. As an adult, I find it increasingly more difficult sometimes to actively watch a movie or a TV show. Mm -hmm. Like for the last three weeks, I think every time I have something on, I have my laptop open and I'm like coding at the same time because I've got so much work on my brain at the moment that I just like it's hard to sit down and enjoy something. Um, what kind of content do you find inspiring for your creative process? What kind of content? What do you mean? What kind of content? Well, content, if any, even. So like, do you like to go for a walk or a bike ride to get creative? Do you like to oh, like watch YouTube I videos? Do you watch educational? Kind of? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you like watching indie shorts or do you watch movies or TV shows? Like what are your creative preferences in that mm. regard? Where do you, in that regard, where do you find inspiration? I do a lot of walking. Oh, me too. That is I'm one of my big favorite walker. ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm a real like stop and smell the roses kind of walker, you know, so pretty much like every day at some point, like now, you know, with work being slow. Also, well, I'm yeah, easy with work being slow, harder now that we're coming into the fall and winter in the rainy lower mainland. Yeah. I'm very sad about that myself. Yeah. (laughs) Taking our walks away. (laughs) Yeah. Gonna have to get more used to being wet again because yeah. after being in the film industry for a couple of years I hated being outside in the rain for any amount of time oh, I feel yeah. like I spent enough time in the rain but now that I'm not a PA standing in the rain for 15 hours a day I feel like it's maybe not so bad and that I should just go out and like get a walk in anyway yeah uh, anyway I cut you off back on so a big walker <laughs> back about my walk yeah <laughs> um yeah big walker okay so yeah, like, I guess I I don't always th- think of these things, I guess, as being for my creative process. But, yeah, they totally are. Like, even just, um, I got into painting in the beginning of the year as well. I For, like, a few Ooh, months, I was just, fun. like, painting like crazy with just acrylics. And um, I remember, like, having this idea that I wanted to do this abstract art based on nature colors of specific nature things um so for example i really like uh trees with moss on them (laughs) it's just like i just love it (laughs) i have witnessed you being a big fan (laughs) of trees with moss on them yes yeah it's thing um so i went and like took a picture of this tree that i thought looked really cool and it had like moss and it had the bark and the leaves and Uh, whatever sky was in the background and then I went home and I color matched all of those pieces of the um, tree with my paints wow and And then just created you like on your macbook not like color selector no I just so talented I can't eyeball (laughs) colors like that that's Um, why I need Amanda to help me make pretty stuff oh yeah (laughs) so yeah so I guess that's a that's a one direct way that my walks (laughs) affected my creativity um, but then I just like created like an abstract thing that didn't look like a tree at all, but it was just all tr- that tree's colors kind of 
Okay, interesting. Yeah. Does it look like anything or is it just abstract colors? I think it was a feather. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Is there some kind of deep psychological connection for you between trees and feathers? I was just p- painting a lot of feathers. <laughs> yeah, I kept doing feathers. Um, I guess, yeah, like there, there's probably like something about the symbolism of feathers that I find appealing. Like they're very light. They just kind of can go with the flow, right? They float in the air. Very flowy. They're soft and inviting, calming. And there's something like calm and peaceful about a feather. They can also be somewhat associated with happiness in the sense of like they're often used to tickle people, especially in (laughs) media, right? And like even though a lot of people don't like being tickled in the sense that they say like, oh, no, don't stop. But it's the way that they say it. They're like, oh, no, stop. And you're like, you're enjoying this. You're laughing and having a great time. Just embrace it. (laughs) Um, But then it's also really weird to tickle someone with a feather. So (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, tick, that's a whole other thing, tickling. I <laughs> I don't know. Like, I find tickling so weird because when I'm being tickled, I do hate it. But you, you laugh. It's like your body is not having the appropriate reaction. So the person doing it is like, oh, they're enjoying it. But, like, actually, you hate it. <laughs> what about it do you hate? Like, what what do you think is the bodily reaction of discomfort in being tickled? Um, I guess... My experiences with being tickled also involve being pinned down to some extent, right? Okay, You're not yeah, just like standing there. Not exactly a positive association. <laughs> no. So it's, I think it's like, largely it's kind of like this anxiety inducing things. It's like I'm powerless against this person and right. they can, and they're just like touching me in places that are very sensitive, you know, and it's like making me feel... Like, I don't even know how to describe the feeling of a tickle. Like, it's such a weird sensation because it's That's not painful. Very good point. Right? Yeah. It's like, what's going on? <laughs> what is the sensation of a tickle? If yeah. anyone has any recommendations, <laughs> please leave that in the comments. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, it's, it's it's a weird sensation to have your body, like, respond in a way that doesn't match how you're actually want okay, to so be it's communicating, like right? Someone else is hacking a response from your body that you do not intend. I guess. It's, it, it's like almost brainwashing in a sense. Sort of, yeah. Also, while we were talking about this, I had the funniest visual in my head of like a UFC fight where they're like on the ground, someone's pinned down, and then one of the fighters just starts tickling the other guy. <laughs> is that against the rules in UFC? I need to ask somebody who watches a lot of UFC. How did that play out? I I mean, there's just two people on the ground tickling and laughing now. Like, one of them is very off-put, and the other one is, like, now in a dominant position because the other guy dropped his guard while he was being tickled. I think that's it. Tickling is about power. Interesting perspective. Tickling is about power. I I mean, that's not the reason it feels weird, but, like, yeah, because, like, you're doing something usually against someone's consent, right? I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> is it always against... Con- it's not always against their consent. Tickling isn't always non-consensual. No. But I, I understand what you're getting at, very much so, yeah. Yeah, like, there's different kinds of tickles. <laughs> I guess I'm referring more to the, like, <laughs> like, you know, like, mm. I'm bothering you and you can't do anything about it. 
Right. Yeah. Like people do to children. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> thinking like sexy tickles. That's a whole other <laughs> conversation. But yeah. That is a very different conversation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, also, I, yeah, I guess probably because it's more inappropriate, but people don't forcefully tickle adults as much. But like as a child, it's almost compulsory to be forcibly tickled yeah. at some point by people. But I, I'm really hooked on that like parallel to power because like what what is an adult getting out of that to forcibly tickle a child like from a power dynamic they're getting a reaction out of them yeah yeah okay and they're they're demonstrating you're powerless right now (laughs) okay so I'm not I'm not saying are, this is like a core well, belief of mine or something, but it's just like <laughs> And this is such a tangent from our conversation, but yeah. like I'm I'm kind of <laughs> like now i my brain is super thinking about this in the sense that like could tickling be an alternate form of punishment for a child? Like if they're doing something that you don't like, instead of hitting your child, which is absolutely unacceptable because like any time you hit a child, it will create trauma that will be with that child for life, whether they realize that or not. And Tickling is so far the opposite of that kind of hitting because it's it's forcing a laugh and like even if they don't like it to a degree like I don't think I've ever seen a child getting tickled that doesn't enjoy it at least a little bit like Mm. they're laughing their ass off and maybe they don't want it to happen but like they're not cry laughing they're like genuinely laughing right and then they come out of it and they're like Ah, and they just are fine right yeah Yeah. so like maybe if a child is doing something that you don't like you can interrupt them by tickling them and it will reset the situation Hmm. yeah would that be traumatizing maybe i need to talk to a psychologist about that it it depends on like the individual child's feelings towards the tickle because like yeah what you're describing that sounds harmless but like also if you have children that just like aren't able to express that they're uncomfortable that could also create trauma right yeah yeah okay that's a good point yeah really any like physical yeah like unconsented physical contact is kind of like crossing a boundary as a child like from a parent to a child like when does a child ever give consent to a parent to like pick it up or to like Mm -hmm breastfeed it or to tickle it or like anything like do parents ever ask children for consent i think it's turning into a thing yeah yeah like um like it it wouldn't be worded in the same way that we would use the terminology as adults but um (laughs) right you're not just like going to your five-year-old and saying do you consent to being picked up right but it's like (laughs) just like teaching your kids I mean, I don't know. I don't have kids, but fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> but, like, neither of us do, so maybe yeah. we shouldn't speculate. But <laughs> if you, I just, but I am like thinking of other people who have kids. What I've observed is like sometimes it's just as simple as being like, if a kid says they don't like it, then don't do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's something I feel like has been historically very difficult for parents, considering the number one. Thing that a parent like always wants to do to their children is force the direction that that child moves and the number one thing that every child slash teenager inevitably responds to or responds with in that situation is wanting to do the opposite mm. uh, 
which is like, I mean, that's like the human species oldest living pattern is that when you try to control someone, they're going to do the opposite. Yeah. And for some reason, over like 5,000 years of evolution, people still haven't figured that out in yeah. a way that's meaningful. Uh, okay. So we got super <laughs> off topic. We're going to call that creative parenting segment, maybe, or something again? like, like <laughs> that. <laughs> so let, going back to your music um, and your walking, like what else <laughs> inspires you? What else do you use in your creative process? Um, physical objects uh, have come in handy for acting. So props, you just, you do the like Macbeth thing and hold the skull up, or is that Hamlet? One of the two. <laughs> um, not even props, because it, it wouldn't even be something that I would use on set. It's just something that like going through character development, just to have something. Um, so for example, I recently was doing a scene uh, about a mother whose uh, little kid passed away or got like hit by a car, and um, that's a very sad scene. Yeah. So that wasn't the scene, but that was just, like, something that had Context. happened in the past. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the scene was, like, her arguing with her husband about something. But um, as I was going through kind of trying to think of, like, what this person's life was, what was this experience like, um, I chose a little children's toy that I would just, like, play with in my hands and think about, like, wh what was this kid like you know like um you know like what reminders are in this house of him like do we have maybe like his little height was marked on notches you know on the wall or um like wh where did this toy come from oh like we went to a carnival and we got this and now I have like all these memories of going to a carnival with this fake child that I never had all associated with this little toy you know and I can just go on and on and on and then every time I look at this object it puts me more quickly back into that right. state of mind. So physical objects um, for symbolism really is helpful. That's super interesting because I feel like using an object to connect yourself to that scene and emotion, like comparing it to the mother in that situation who actually had that happen to them, they would probably very often at least like... To be totally fair, I can only relate to this from having seen it in, like, movies and TV shows, so maybe real people don't do it like this in real life, but people making movies think that this is how it works. But I <laughs> I have this very strong association that, like, if a person is holding on to something, like, we like to keep trinkets or, like, memorabilia of some sort, right? So if you're holding that toy as that mother who actually went through that situation— like, it's helping you remember your child and connect to your child, but it's also preventing you from letting go in a way because you're, like, latched on to those memories. And the more you hold and associate that object, the more it's going to put you back into that place. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of interesting that, like, the technique that you use to help put yourself in the shoes of that mother is potentially also something that psychologically would be preventing that mother from moving on if this scenario was real. Um, mm -hmm. So, it, like, that's, I guess, an example of inspiration that is creative and destructive. Yeah, it's almost like the real-life mother handed down this object, this, like, magical object to me to take on all of her 
feelings. It's an interesting way of putting it. Um, yeah, magical object imbued with her emotions and her memories. Yeah, she's like, I can't deal with it. I don't want this anymore. And I'm like, I'll take it. <laughs> I can use this. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything besides objects? Um, for music, I mean, I'm inspired largely by other music. It's the biggest thing. Yes, music is almost always the biggest inspiration for other music, I think. Yeah, and especially seeing live music, like, when you go see, like, a really good band or it's just, like, just the vibe you needed at the time or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. um, that's really inspirational. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. I, uh... I actually had quite a magical moment about that last week when I went to see Ricardo, our audio engineer, uh, play. He's a drummer, and he was doing a set with two different bands. Um, There was three, uh, yeah, I think three acts that night, uh, and he was in both of the opening acts Mm. as their drummer. And at different points of the night, I... Like, I ended up, for the first time in my life, went to this concert alone because the friends that were supposed to go with me had to cancel for various reasons. And I was kind of nervous at first because I've never been to a concert alone. But then after I got there and just kind of, like, got into the music and just, like, I kind of did this thing where I stood at the front of the crowd and then kind of pretended like no one else was there. And it just felt like I had a private concert. And it was so cool. Mm -hmm. Um and then I just get to, like, close my eyes and focus on the drumming or, like, right. just the guitar or just the lyrics kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It, and it's just such a different experience than if I had gone with friends yeah. and you're standing in a different place and you're in a different mindset and a different mood. Um, That's a really good point, actually. I would say that doing things alone is really inspiring to me, too. Um, it helps us get out of our shell. And it And it shows you just what you actually like. Yeah. Right? Because when you're going out, like, whatever it is you're doing with other people, like, whether you're, like, traveling or just, like, going to a concert or going for dinner or whatever it is, like, you're constantly... And not that it's bad to be influenced by other people's, like, wants and needs. You know, you have to do that to have community. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you're always... If you never, like, go out and do things by yourself, you don't know, like, how how great it can be to just, like, do everything you want to (laughs) do. You it know? is very liberating. Yeah, and then it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure instead of like, yeah. a, all right, as a group, like, what do we like? And then it's, yeah, it's a completely different thing. So, yeah, I like that Very one. much so, yeah. It definitely helps you learn more about yourself, get more comfortable with yourself. Um, yeah. So, music, anything else? Is that the big ones? Music, um, um, objects, walks? Um. Oh, I'm finding walks so funny, but <laughs> I mean, I I feel the same because like yeah. I've asked this question to a few people, and I'm gonna ask it to a lot more people definitely on this podcast. And the guy that I was talking to yesterday, Marvin, he asked me the same thing, and my first answer was also walks. And as I was saying it, <laughs> I felt like it seems so weird to consider this a creative inspiration. I'm going for a walk. And yet every time, like while I was writing my book, I like literally couldn't start a sit down and write session unless I had started with going for a walk Mm -hmm. and like thinking about what I wanted to write or like where the story was going. Or alternatively, 
in the rare events where I managed to like maybe start my day writing kind of thing, by midday, I'd have to go for a walk and kind of unpack the things that I wrote about. Uh, so either way, walking ended up being a massive mm-hmm. piece of it. And it also gives you energy. Absolutely. Right? Like yeah. if you're kind of sitting there like, like I don't really feel like I don't know what I'm going to do. And you're looking at a blank, whatever it is that you want to be working on. And you just like get up, go for a walk. All of a sudden you come back and you're just like, oh, I'm awake, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. instead of kind of like, yeah, like. Especially when you're in such a lethargic state like that. And if you're like, if your screen is blank, if you've had writer's block or mm-hmm. you're like trying to draw something or paint something and you're just like, you've got one line on the page or something. It's very discouraging to sit there and stare at that and be like, I know I can do better than this. Why aren't I doing better than this? Yeah. Come on, do it. <laughs> yeah. Move hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, oh, another one. Uh, what's the word for it when you just, when you, uh, like, you don't think about what you're writing. You just sit down and you just kind of, like, write random nonsense going on in your head. I don't know if there isn't. There's maybe there's a name for it. It would make sense if there's a name for there's it because humans love it. to name everything. Yeah. <laughs> but I very I I know very much what you're talking about because I do that all the time and like that's the number one piece of advice that I give to people when I tell them to start journaling or mm-hmm. if they're like interested in starting to try and write something. Um because so many people have told me like how the conversation quite often goes when someone finds out that I wrote a book, they're like, oh, I would love to write a book, but I like, I'm not a good writer or I don't know how to start or I don't know what to talk about kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first piece of advice to them is always like, if you don't know what to write about, just sit down and start writing literally the stream of thought that is in your head. Like stream of thought. That's I the don't word I was looking know for. what to write. I'm just going to write this until something starts to come out and eventually it will turn into something. And then before you know it, by a quarter down the page or halfway down the page, instead of having a random stream of thought about nothing, you have a random stream of thought about things that are really deeply going on in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it even it just gets you started too. Yeah, and starting is for a lot of people the hardest part, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you so your musical career was definitely earlier uh, in your life because you were in a band for a while and you guys played live shows and stuff, right? Yeah, that was short. Um, most of my like musical background has been solo stuff. So okay. I did play in a band, like, my first year of college kind of thing. Um, it lasted, like, less less than a year, I think, that I was playing with them. Oh, wow. And then I was just, like, switched to doing solo stuff again. And then I didn't do anything for, like, uh, once I got into—so I started—when I was going to university, I started at Mount Royal in Calgary, and then I ended up transferring to the University of Calgary to finish the communications degree. Mm-hmm. And I just, like— when I when I got to the UFC, I just I just like couldn't do both. My brain just couldn't do it. <laughs> like right. I couldn't focus on my classes. I just constantly had melodies going on in my head, and I was so passionate and just like fired up about what I was working on. But I was like, okay, Kelly, two years. Just you can come back to this later. Just like finish what you started here, right? Uh-huh. So I did that. I didn't. Sounds like ADHD to me. I've been there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Teaches you discipline, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I 
didn't touch anything like my any like instruments or singing or anything for those last couple years and then I don't know like by by the end of those two years it was just it just had disappeared that um that fire it just was not there anymore and I was like oh that sucks so then I probably went six years without playing any music and then just started again when I moved to Vancouver six years ago that brings up something that is a very deep belief for me that like standard regular institutional education tends to train the creativity out of people mm-hmm. uh, and I very much felt that going through engineering school was like anything that I might have started doing that was creative I would just be so drained having to go through school that like I didn't have creative energy left like the first time I started trying to write a book was in my like first or second year of university and I got like 28,000 words into it. I still plan on finishing it one day. It's going to be one of five in the series that I'm writing uh, connected to the first one I finished and the sequel to that that I've got on the go. But I just like, I couldn't go to school all day, listen to lectures, read textbooks, do homework, and then also write afterwards. Mm. Um, And I couldn't, even brainstorm ideas for my stories after a point like I got to this point where I would just sit at my computer staring at the word doc and I would write a sentence stare at it for five minutes delete it write a paragraph stare at it for five minutes delete it and then I just, like, I couldn't get anywhere with it at all. And I noticed the only time that the writing really started to pick up again was during the months that I was off between. Like, if I had a semester off in the summer or a month off over Christmas time kind mm-hmm. of thing. And it just, like, the association became absolutely overwhelming for me that being in that kind of post-secondary institutional environment was literally sucking the creativity out of me. Mm. Uh, I would actually love to have one of my old professors on this show and talk to him about that a little bit. That'd be super interesting, (laughs) yeah. Is there, Um, like, a specific one you have in mind? Yes. uh, There's actually two professors from my program. Well, maybe three um, that I think could be top candidates for talking to on this podcast. But there is one in particular that I would like to talk to about that. He's the only one that was a professor because he wanted to teach. All of the other Mm -hmm. professors in my faculty were there for research. And he actually finished his PhD in that faculty. He was one of the first graduates of the SFU Mechatronics program as a PhD. And when SFU hired him, he told them in his contract that he was purely there to teach. He does not want to do any research. Hmm. Which, to a degree, like... How does that connect to creativity, especially if I'm saying that post-secondary institutional uh, environments train creativity out of people? But the first course that he taught us was a course on Lego robots, like using these Lego Mindstorm kits. Amazing. That's literally how they (laughs) suck you into the program. They're like, here's Lego, build whatever you want program it to do some cool stuff and we made like sumo robots out of them to have like a sumo competition it was super fun uh and then after taking that course you're like 
this program is going to be so cool. I'm going to be an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> and then you finish that course. And then for the next like four years, nothing brings you that much excitement ever again. Mm. <laughs> uh, except well, like you get to a couple of the later electives where you get to do similar things with real robotics and not just Lego. And those can be fun again. But at mm -hmm. that point, you have so much stress from your other courses and being like a senior engineering student that yeah. you don't get to enjoy it in the same way that you did. Uh, so I would especially love to talk to him about that aspect of teaching, uh, like with that course, how he feels about post-secondary environments and how that course like may conflict with my belief on them training creativity out of people. Mm. Uh, but also from the perspective of him being an educator, like creativity to me, a largely is problem solving to a degree and when he started teaching he was not anywhere near a good professor <laughs> like that wasn't a very delicate way of saying that but <laughs> at, like he was well aware of it like yeah. when he first started teaching like second and third year courses that were more intense than the lego robots course uh for the first year that he did it, it was very well known that like he wasn't great in the sense that he didn't elaborate on the right points properly. He didn't go over important details that people really needed to know. And he didn't have as structured of like a game plan for teaching his content. Uh, but what he was very good at was taking feedback from students. And mm -hmm. by the very next year, he went from being like one of the worst professors in the faculty to being literally like one of the two best professors in the faculty. Uh, so that involves a lot of creative process to me. Um, for teaching, you mean? Yeah, to like for him to be able to change his style in a way that responded really well to students and also mm. i think part of creativity is being able to let go of previous failed work and focus on your new projects or your new endeavor kind of thing right and it's very difficult for a lot of people to let go of their failures or to let go of that criticism but he dropped it flawlessly and managed to become one of the most preferred professors in the entire program that's awesome. Uh, pretty much second only to one of the other ones that I think I would like to have on who owned a company doing railway engineering. He like designed his company designed, built and sold a bunch of really nifty railway technology. Hmm. Like essentially the I think it was like the stabilizing undercarriage that lets trains rock. Like his company built that. Uh, maybe not the only people that built that. I'm sure there's other solutions in other places, but uh there is very much an aspect of engineering that requires a lot of creativity. So that's why I'm a little conflicted about talking to professors because, mm -hmm. one, I think they're unintentionally training creativity out of people. But at the same time, there are aspects of their job and their work outside of their like teaching job that is incredibly creative. Yeah, I, like kind of the overarching thing is creative but like just the mundane little tasks that have to go into creating the creative thing are not creative yeah yeah i think part of my issue is also the way that 
education is delivered. Like sitting in a lecture hall with 60 to 250 people Mm -hmm. is not conducive to learning. (laughs) And also like they're just like grading you basically based on the other people that you're in a class with. Right. Like it's not. um, Like you can only be as good or bad as the group that you're in. You know what I mean? Yeah, very much so. There was like one of our second year electronics courses. Actually, it was a third year electronics course. But the average grade on our midterm was 18%. Ooh. And because it was 18%, everybody passed because it's on a scale. Everyone gets bumped up so that like the average grade of 18% ends up being like a B minus or C plus or something. Right. So even the people that got like 5% ended up passing. One of my friends got zero on that exam and she passed that course. I feel like that's likely a reflection on the teaching though too. 100%. (laughs) 100%. like, that's not normal. This guy was an electrical engineer that couldn't figure out how to turn the projector on. Okay. There you go. (laughs) He can build a projector. He just can't press the power button. Yeah. (laughs) Um. Okay, another tangent there. Uh, We're good at those. <laughs> yeah. Actually, from your experience in post-secondary, going through your communications program, how creative would you say it was? Or, like, did you feel a similar experience that you felt it was training creativity out of you? Or did you find the opposite, where you felt it made you more creative? Um, It wasn't not creative. I think it was just, like, how you were describing just kind of the framework of how the educational system works that I just didn't fit into was kind of what made it impossible for me to do the other creative things that I wanted to do. Um, Yeah, I guess I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around, like, is learning creative? I absolutely would say learning is creative. Like, would it be the ways in which you like figure out different ways of learning that is the creative part or what would you say is the creative part? I think that could be an aspect of it because everybody will learn in a slightly different way and figuring out what ways you learn best could involve some amount of creativity. Mm -hmm. But I also think that combining the knowledge that you've learned, like perhaps maybe learning in and of itself of one topic isn't necessarily creative. uh, But when you take the knowledge from that one topic and then you combine it with knowledge that you have from any other random topic, you're smashing those two disparate ideas together and it's giving you, like, that's where a lot of the ideas for my books come from is I just take two completely unrelated concepts or ideas, topics, whatever, and somewhere in my head, they get smashed together like a particle super collider And whatever comes out of that, sometimes it's absolutely ludicrous. And sometimes it makes for brilliant content, in my opinion, um, just because of the sheer amount of diversity and creativity in the idea. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Like, definitely there was a lot of, like, papers that I had to write um, that involved creative process, right? Like, doing the research and uh, bringing these different ideas together to create one cohesive idea. Um, and I was definitely like interested too. The courses I were taking were really interesting. So yeah, I guess it was creative. 
Um, but it wasn't giving you life while you were doing it because you said you didn't fit into that environment very well. Yeah. And even just, I think the nature of it um, is like, okay, yeah, I have a communications degree, but like I was a pretty B student, (laughs) you know, like I wasn't like the best of my class or whatever, right? So it's like, what am I trying to say here? Um, What's my train of thought? Do you think being a higher graded student would have changed the experience for you? right. So what I'm trying to say is like, yes, I was having a creative experience. I was enjoying myself, but that's not what makes you successful in that environment. That in itself isn't what makes you successful. You also have to do things very quickly. <laughs> Speed is not my forte. Um, everything just would like take me a lot longer. So that puts a lot of more pressure, right? So like I'm still doing the creative thing, um, but that doesn't necessarily what they care about when it comes down to like, did you succeed at this assignment or not? Right. Yeah. I think I feel something similar. Like I would spend hours working on an assignment or a project and it felt like I had to spend twice as much time on it as a lot of my friends did and at the end of it I still didn't feel like I got as much out of it but the pressure from those deadlines is definitely very real in a post-secondary environment and I think perhaps that pressure of deadlines I'm actually really curious to hear your opinion on this because some people find the pressure of deadlines to be motivational and help their process um Mm-hmm. even in creative fields, whereas other people find deadlines to be unnecessary stress. So I'm curious, what side of this camp do you fall into? Do you like deadlines or do you dislike deadlines? I need them. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I need some kind of deadline. Um, otherwise, it's just too easy to procrastinate and do other things that I find interesting or get sidetracked by. Um Even if you're working on something that you really love, you need a deadline to not procrastinate on it? Um, to finish it, I would, deadlines help. Because I might just kind of keep going and then I'll end up in this, like, brain circle where I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. (laughs) What does it all mean? I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So then if I have a deadline, it's like, okay, well, you got to just make a decision. Um, so I guess, yeah, like the good part of my experience with uh, going to university, it definitely taught me discipline. Um, even like throughout high school, like my entire education, it was just like, I had to be so disciplined just to keep up, right? And just to get through. So that in itself isn't necessarily something I would consider creativity, but I do think it's helpful in supporting creative ventures now well yeah absolutely like Mm -hmm. discipline is self-mastery and uh from the point of view that we only get the power to control one thing and it is ourselves and any attempt to control anything besides ourselves will only end in misery uh Discipline is absolutely necessary and crucial for the control of yourself. Like, a a simple example being, like, as a child on Halloween, you get a bag of candy, and the child just wants to eat the whole bag of candy, like, right away, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But 
as an adult, if you get a bag of candy, in theory, you have the discipline to not eat the whole bag of candy because you know that if you eat that whole bag of candy, it's going to make you feel like shit. Right. Um, and I feel like developing self-discipline is a crucial part of growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, in that sense, it's almost necessary to eat that whole bag of candy as a kid so you can learn that it makes you feel like shit as you're growing up. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the balance of, like, how old do you need to be to realize that it's the bag of candy that's making you feel that way and not anything else in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and a lot of people as adults don't really have self-discipline. Like, a lot of people struggle with that. That's very true. I think one of the reasons for that might be that there's a lack of education during the younger formative years that helps train people to be more Mm -hmm. disciplined right like things that are very good for training discipline are like team sports and martial arts and music and i mean even military school although that's a bad example i find because it ends up teaching you discipline through both control and psychological abuse which i don't find to be very powerful motivators for most people Mm -hmm. um except for doing the opposite of what they're trying to get you to do uh yeah maybe it's just like a matter of applying that discipline to your own creative process right because like if people go through you know school and everything and they learn how to be disciplined but they only know how to be disciplined for their job or like whatever you know the thing is that they like need to do or whatever the thing is that they were trained to be disciplined in right but that doesn't necessarily always um translate into your own self-discipline of things that you don't necessarily have to do nobody needs you to do these things right you're the one that wants to do it that's where like the hard self-discipline kind of comes in yeah yeah like they can finish all of their work on time and they're great communicators at work but they go home and they knock back a six-pack because they can't tell themselves to stop at one kind of thing yeah um or their house is a mess and they're like ugh, car is full of fast food wrappers (laughs) yeah yeah um very much so uh so i'm how would you say that the community in the Lower Mainland affects your creativity? Do you feel like there is much community in the Lower Mainland? Do you feel like there is, like, are there parts of community that are more intense or not more intense, but like better? Like, for example, now that you've started to break into acting and you've been going to acting school and stuff, like, do you feel a strong sense of community with other people going through those programs? Do you feel any sense of community in the industry as you're trying to get gigs or as you're working on indie projects with friends? Do you feel like there's no sense of community in the Lower Mainland? Like, touch on that a bit for me, please. The classes that I've gone to have been incredibly supportive and just positive environments to be in like what you're doing is so vulnerable when especially when you're learning right because finding where different things live in you um and expressing certain things that maybe you don't typically feel safe or comfortable expressing or behaving in certain ways and all of a sudden it's like 
you just have to figure out how to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's scary, you know? Um, like, for example, example, a lot of people are afraid of anger. Um, and I think it... it Feeling it, it or, like, being the victim of someone else's anger? No, of being angry being as an actor, angry. like, um, tapping into anger and just, like... Because like how I was describing it before, it's like you are feeling the feeling and then your body just does what the feeling tells it to. So in a sense, you're kind of like um, giving up control, right? You're uh, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Yeah, you, you you're just you you don't always know what's going to happen. And if 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 anger, just as an example, if that's something that you're not comfortable um, expressing in real life, then maybe you don't know. Like when you start having those feelings in an acting class, and you're not really the whole exercise is just to let it happen and not judge it and just see what happens it can be scary because you don't always know what you're going to do especially with (laughs) anger anger is one of the emotions that does typically give the most unpredictable responses for people yeah absolutely yeah um so yeah so the the environments tend to be really supportive and just like safe feeling and i've definitely like kept in contact with a lot of people that I've been in classes with and done short films with. Um, that's that's like one side of it. <laughs> There's another side. <laughs> well, once yeah, like There's always two sides. Yeah. So like yeah, like the the my learning process so far has been amazing. Like everyone's been great. Um once you get into like competing for jobs, it gets it's a different thing. Like I have I don't have much experience in this yet because I just signed with my agency in August um, and things haven't even really picked up in film yet. Um, but from what I've heard from like other people that have been around longer, uh, it's not like it gets pretty cutthroat. It's, yeah, that's have you ever seen the show Barry? It's an HBO. I'm watching it right now. Yeah. Fantastic it's so show. Good. It's so good. What <laughs> yeah. season are you on? Three. OK, so. um I can't remember her name, but Barry's girlfriend. Sally. Sally. <laughs> uh, in their acting class, there like, is a point where, at some point in one of the seasons, Sally is auditioning for shows or parts, and she comes into contact with like other people that she knows from acting classes or whatnot. And on the surface, they're like friends, but then as soon as they get into, or like out of the audition, I guess, or... As soon as they realize they're competing against each other for the role, all of a sudden they become frenemies kind of thing, right? Mm. Um, So I find it very interesting at how real that seems to be based on what you've just said. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also makes me think of a parallel to university in a lot of ways, especially in business school. Mm -hmm. Because how I mentioned uh, for engineering school how it's on a curve so that everyone gets scaled up. Uh, In business, it's actually different. It gets scaled based on averages, and since average marks are much higher, it actually tends to bring down people's marks. Hmm. So if you're not in the top percentile, like 68 to 
100% percentile kind of thing, there's a high probability that your mark actually gets reduced by scaling. Hmm. Uh, and that makes the business classes an incredibly competitive cutthroat environment where you could be doing a project with people in one class and they're all like friend, buddy, buddy, and they're great. But like in another class that's not collaborative, they are like very much trying to steal your grades mm. in kind of a malicious way mm-hmm. or trying to sabotage other people in some kind of way. Uh, why do humans need to do that? Why do we feel the need to sabotage each other? <laughs> Yeah, you know, like, I think, like, as you know, the just in general, the film industry is just chaotic. Like, you know, you can... <laughs> chaotic is probably <laughs> the best word to describe the film yeah, industry. Yeah, it's just... There is no order. No, and there's no one way to get places, right? Like, like <laughs> it's not normal to go from set deck to acting, for example, you know? But I, that's how, that was my... Journey, more normal right? to go from acting to PAing to set deck. Yeah, something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like, so it's just, yeah, you, you kind of don't know always how things are going to play out. You just kind of, like, go with the flow, and um, at least that's how I'm approaching it, is just kind of showing up and seeing what lights me up and following that. And so far, that's been serving me really well in the film industry. Yeah, I I would definitely second that in the sense that especially since last February, I have really been like a find the flow, go with the flow mentality. Mm-hmm. And I have never been a more content, happy, satisfied person. And I have also never been able to pursue the kinds of things that I want to do with my life more freely than having that go with the flow mentality because it like... It very much feels like having that go with the flow mentality, as long as your eyes are open to catch the flow when it comes to you, it takes you exactly where you want to go. And it does so with so much less friction than if you were trying to force your way into it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, for example, getting this all set up and um, trying to get this podcast started and trying to get my company off the ground, I... When I kept it to myself and did a lot of careful, quiet planning and thought about all the ways that it could go wrong, I didn't make hardly any progress Mm. and it wasn't really going anywhere. And I was always so concerned about what people might think about it or about like how much progress I was making kind of thing. Whereas when I took the opposite side of that and decided, you know what, I'm just going to embrace the things that I love. I'm going to make this my life. And I'm going to share it with people that I trust. And after I share it with people that I trust, I'm going to share it with everyone else. And after adopting that mentality and starting to share the things with people that I trust, I got nothing but support and encouragement and people that wanted to work with me or help me do those things. Mm -hmm. Um, So the power of going with the flow just seems absolutely overwhelmingly yeah, influential, positive, like, I can't recommend it enough to people that are trying to force their way through lives. Just let go of control and go with the flow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so you didn't actually touch that much on 
community outside of the acting stuff? Like, do you feel oh. there's a sense of community in the film industry? Do you feel like... Cause, so, context for this question. One of the things that we're trying to do at Omnia Theatre here is build a community of local creators, especially local creators first. Like, eventually, my, my goal and my dream is to, like, connect creators around the world. I want to redefine creativity and reintroduce the world to what their creativity is. Because I feel like in the last few hundred years, especially, we have, as a species, basically forgotten that we are here to build new things in a positive and constructive way. And instead, we just use each other to build things in a negative way. Mm. Um, and I think one of the big things that causes that disconnect is like the large corporate model. Because when you add that much um, disconnect to it, there's no personalization. There's no like human connection. And when you make everything about cutting costs and maximizing profits, you don't get to experience the people behind the projects. And also, like you said, for union work in the film industry, mm -hmm. people are there for the paycheck, right? Whereas when you go to, like you said, Indyland, or you go to the small projects, when you go to small teams, they are passionate people that are trying to make someone's passion project. They're trying to bring something to life that was someone's dream. Mm -hmm. And I want to give everyone that has a dream the ability to take that dream and deliver it to the world uh so that's that's context okay. on community I'm, okay. I'm trying to build a community of creators starting in vancouver and expanding it across the world but in starting that i'm trying to get a sense of what community means to creators and mm -hmm. artistic people and how they think it might be improved in the lower mainland mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, okay i see where you're going um yeah, I mean, yeah, there's not, like, an overall sense of community in, in Vancouver that I, like, it It definitely took a long time, um, yeah, just to, like, feel like I had a steady, you know, group of friends and, you know, work was consistent or whatever. Um, yeah, like, in terms of uh, people, because you're talking about, like, the corporate world and stuff. Um, and how it kind of, it kind of like puts people on a, a conveyor belt, right? Where you're just Very like much so. feeding the system, you're, not the system, you're feeding the the company, essentially, right? Everything is to support this Yeah, you're this company. working hard and being stressed out to make someone else rich. Yeah, so I think like a, a big problem with that comes uh, in relation to creativity and community is the absence of authentic self-expression. Because... If you like you have to behave in a certain way to fit in to societal norms or into your work culture norms or into mm. whatever it is, you have to be professional. You can't like sometimes, you know, maybe it's not OK to be silly in your office or even, you know, which is just like sounds like such a boring <laughs> office to be in. Yeah. Um, or whatever it is, like you have to be professional. You have to dress, you know, in whatever like a suit or a you know, casual, business casual or whatever they call it. Right. Um, Look professional. Yeah. So essentially you're doing things to fit into this thing. Whereas if you were, um, if, if people were more focused on authentic self-expression, then you can see where your people are and you're, you can find your community more easily, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right? I think like another very important part of that that's being lost in modern society is freedom of speech. If people are constantly censoring the things that they talk about or are willing to share with people, it becomes increasingly difficult to find community because you don't know what people have similar ideas, interests, likes, and you also don't know what people disagree with you on. And I don't mean that because you should like stop talking to people that you disagree with. Absolutely yeah. the opposite. I think that more people that disagree need to sit down and have like constructive adult conversations about the things that they disagree about because mm -hmm. shutting people down and ignoring the conversation is only ever going to make things worse. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like the the cancel culture which has definitely proliferated through film and the entertainment industry a lot, mm -hmm. has partly made it a lot more difficult to meet the people in the industry that are your tribe because mm -hmm. a lot more people are on guard about the things that they say. Um, and they're a lot more on guard about making new friends because they're concerned that these other people are either going to stab them in the back or, I mean, to a lot of... Uh, to a lot of them, they're not even willing to give the time to someone that disagrees on a specific topic, so they won't realize that they agree on everything else and would actually probably make great friends. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that fear of not being able to speak your mind is mm -hmm. extremely detrimental to being able to build a community, kind of similar to like what you were saying about like having to fit into the company culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you... Like, I wonder if if people, if it was encouraged just overall for people to just express themselves freely, whether it's like freedom of speech or it's just their um, way of being, you know, their lifestyle, whatever it is, um, I feel like people would be less intimidated and afraid of otherness, right? It's like yeah, if absolutely. you yourself understand that it's okay to like, oh, this is an interesting, like, thing that's come up in me. Like, if you feel safe to explore that and, like, see what it, as long as it's not hurting anybody, you know, mm -hmm. if you feel safe doing that, then maybe when you see, like, other people doing things, you're like, what is, what? You know, it won't be so scary. You'll be like, oh, they're just exploring their inner self or <laughs> whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, or it's okay that they they do things differently. Like, it just wouldn't be as... Um, controversial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, actually, bringing Ammer back up, the professor that uh, I love so much from SFU, he went and did a program for a few weeks in Germany as like part of some additional training. They were setting up an like an extra certificate that you could get through our program that was like control systems for Siemens technology, um, like control system, a German company that does control systems. Mm, okay. And something that he found very eye-opening over there and very interesting was their corporate culture. They have this sort of tradition where like once a week they get all of the employees together and the employees will literally just like open face say to management like this is wrong or this is bad or this is not going right like you guys need to sort this out you need to fix this you need to do something about this or like 
from our perspective, this thing isn't going well. You guys need to come up with a new strategy for us kind of thing. And they have this culture of promoting the employees talking back to management in a constructive way where they are actually pointing out flaws and errors that the lower leveled employees see. Hmm. And because this is such an ingrained cultural thing for them, no one fears the repercussions of like getting fired over their boss not liking that they said that their boss isn't communicating well. Mm. Um, and I feel like it would be hugely beneficial if we here in Canada and even the greater North American area adopted that kind of culture. Because I can't tell you how many workplaces I've been in where no one is willing to speak their mind about how shitty a project is going, but mm. literally everybody on the team knows that this project is a dumpster fire. Mm. And like, I feel that in film all the time too, because in film you end up with a bunch of department heads or like onset keys that are massive egos that just like refuse to take anyone else's opinion yeah. and refuse to see other ways of doing things. And they also just have so much pressure that they they can't care, <laughs> right? Like whoever's above them is going to like... That's true, because the person above them is doing the exact same thing <laughs> yeah. to them, right? And that sort of thing, it's kind of like the... I mean, it very much is similar to uh, nurture conditioning, right? Like if you are raised by a parent that is aggressive and emotionally abusive as an adult when you grow up you're probably going to be aggressive and emotionally abusive because mm -hmm. that's what you know and you're also right. going to seek out other relationships that are aggressive and emotionally abusive because that's what you know and that's what you think that dynamic is supposed to be like mm -hmm. so having a lot of people feel that way in the film industry that their opinion is the only one that matters and that because they're under the gun and under the pressure, they can't trust anyone else to do it right. They need to micromanage things. Like, that kind of mindset is so detrimental to progress and to collaboration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so now that we've talked about depressing corporate culture a whole <laughs> bunch, let's, let's move back on to a slightly happier topic uh -huh. and talk about what songs you're going to play for us today. Oh, boy. Um... I pulled out a, a song. It might only be one song. Okay. I'll see how it I goes. Mean, I'll take whatever you give us. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's kind of about creativity, actually, is why I chose it. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I can't wait to hear it. So I, I always, I never really know how to describe a song because they're kind of self-explanatory in their own ways, I guess. I don't always want to just like feed exactly what you're supposed to listen for or something. Yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> absolutely. Know? But rather than that, let's say, what was the inspiration for this song? Like, rather than trying to tell people how to read into it, I'm curious, like, what sparked the idea for the song in your head to begin with? Um, so essentially, like, I actually don't even remember specifically what I was, like, what was going on in my life when I wrote this. It was a few years ago. It's kind of about um, losing yourself and then finding yourself again. Oh, I'm a big fan of that. that. Yeah, I like that a lot. But then also, <laughs> um, yeah, just like things not seeming what they are and being open to letting go when things are no longer working. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's a 
a line that I got out of one of my psychedelic trips one time that is love, help, and letting go never look the way we want them to. Mm. Um, and that, like, the idea behind it being that, like, love takes many forms and it's almost never the way that we think we want to be loved because we can't dictate or determine how other people show love. So the person that loves you might not be the person that you want to love you or the way that a person loves you might not be the way that you typically would expect to receive love. And similar for help and letting go, like a lot of people don't like letting go of things. Mm -hmm. Most people don't like letting go of things. And a lot of people find it very difficult. Uh, and it's always going to be a surprise about what you have to let go. Mm. Uh, but personally, I find that almost all lessons in life are lessons in letting go and that you only learn your lesson after you have managed to let go of that thing. Mm-hmm. Everything is temporary, right? So. I mean, yeah, and that's that's what makes it beautiful. That's what makes this life beautiful. Um, that There's a foundational like japanese concept i can't remember what it's called now but that like that's a very core part of their culture is the idea that like everything is temporary and that's what makes it beautiful Hmm. um like kind of like the beauty and imperfection sort of idea right Mm -hmm. um i think the beauty and imperfection concept is wabi-sabi but i'm not 100 percent sure that's the same as temporary being beautiful um So, if you could choose any way to improve the community in the Lower Mainland, what would you say would be a good way to help improve community in the Lower Mainland? Hmm. I don't don't know if I have put enough... I feel like I'd have to put a lot more thought into that. But what would improve it? Um... Well, what is, like, a... a friction point that you feel most for you because if there's a friction point for you it's probably a friction point for a lot of people maybe just like let's talk to strangers more <laughs> you know like that's it's yeah. a big thing that i notice here uh like i grew up in alberta um and uh so it's not like super different we're still in the same country right but um that's something that i i've noticed since moving here is that like if you talk to someone downtown in this on the street um, or really anywhere, it's like they're kind of just like instantly trying to get out of the conversation. Like they'll still be polite. Absolutely. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, 100%. it's like, oh, it's like, why is this weirdo talking to me? Yeah. You know, whereas like that's that's not the norm everywhere. Like um, lots of places you can just like have a three minute conversation that's fun and whatever. And then you part ways and it just was what it was. And mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, people don't ever want to engage with strangers here. I think that's a would be a good Very place much to start. So. Yeah. So anyone listening to this, uh, you've got some homework of trying to have a conversation with a stranger, and maybe <laughs> it will make your life feel a little bit happier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I very much agree with that. I actually struck up a conversation with a stranger while I was at the concert alone last week. I noticed someone standing alone also, and like, if I was not alone, I never would have approached them. Um, historically i've always also been pretty bad at like starting a conversation with a stranger um and i think for part of my life i was kind of closed off to it and only just recently have opened myself up to it a little bit more 
But now that I've opened myself up to it, I noticed that there are very few people on the reciprocating end. Like, not very many people actually mm-hmm. do want to um, break the ice right. and get to know someone new. Yeah, they even just want to stay in bit. their little bubble yeah. and, like, leave me alone. Especially with wireless headphones these days. Oh, I find that, like... Awful. Yeah, everyone's got their ear pods or earbuds in or whatever they're called. It's uh, just an excuse to ignore everybody. Yeah. <laughs> But actually, that yeah, that brings up a good point. It's like not only go out and talk to strangers, but be like receptive if somebody's talking to you, you know, it could even be that yeah. simple, you know, because you're right. People do struggle just to even like engage with someone that's taking the first step on, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like at least from my perspective, what happens sometimes is even if I'm not against having the conversation with a stranger, if they approach me or start the conversation, my brain just like panics and I don't know what to say. <laughs> and I give just like a super lame, like two word response. And then like 30 seconds later, I'm like, I definitely could have made that so much better than it was. And I just like frozen brain farted. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be like a conversation. It's just like, just look at the person and take, if someone's like talking to you, just like, hear them and if it elicits a conversation cool if not like you don't have to have a conversation you know but Mm -hmm. it's just like stop doing this like the blinders got to get those off for people listening she put her (laughs) hands up to her eyes so she didn't have peripheral vision that's correct (laughs) (laughs) yeah um okay cool uh and so Starting conversations and being open to conversations with strangers, I think that that could be a very good starting point. Interactions like, even. It doesn't even have yeah. to be a conversation. Like, just interact very with true. people, you know? Look in people's eyes. It's uh, Yeah, <laughs> on that note, there was, um, so there's a guy, one of the hair team on Nancy Drew. He was from Montreal, and he would walk around set all the time and just, like, make eye contact with people, and it made a lot of people on the crew feel kind of uncomfortable and they would immediately avert their eyes in the classic typical way we're so familiar Mm -hmm. with these days um i can't tell you how many people make eye contact for like a quarter of a second and then look down in a way when i try and smile at them Mm. Uh, but what he was actually doing is being from montreal it is part of their culture that like they make eye contact with like everyone And they hold eye contact for, like, Mm -hmm. 30 seconds as part of their, like, nonverbal communication, whether or not they're going to have a conversation. Right. And so for him, he was just trying to do what was normal for him. And that's a way that a lot of people open up and talk and meet new people kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. But he found it very isolating on set because no one wanted to hold eye contact with him. And that meant that he didn't know how to start conversations with people as much because no one would hold the eye contact long enough for him to like warrant breaking the ice kind of thing. I actually run into that too. Like, cause that's how I start conversations. Typically it's just by making eye contact. It's like you see someone, Oh, they're seeing me now I can interact. But yeah, like when you're here, like probably other places too, it's just, you're, you come across someone if they don't look at you and I'm just like looking at them, waiting for them to like look back at me and they never do. It's like, okay. Yeah. Eh. It's something that it I find kind of almost not exhausting because that's too far, but like something that can be a drain on energy is if you're walking down the street and you're trying to make eye contact and smile at people 
and then like literally 10 people in a row look away as soon as you look at them it can be very discouraging to try and continue to look at people and make eye contact. You're like, why am I even bothering to look at these people at all when the second I look at them, they look away? Yeah. But then it feels like that's probably one of the things that propagates this is like nobody is Mm -hmm. bothering to put in that tiny little bit of attention to begin with. And when you, yeah, and then you just eventually adapt to your environment, right? And then you kind of just become like one one of the same. It's like, oh, no one's looking at me. I guess I'm going to stop trying. And then, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Like now, I'm super aware of how much eye contact I'm making with you. <laughs> I'm like, have I been making eye contact with you while we've been talking here? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Quite a bit, definitely. <laughs> There's times where you look away while you're trying to remember something or okay. catch a thought, but mm-hmm. for the most part, we're making eye contact. We can even review the footage later. Yeah, <laughs> we can give ourselves a grade. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for your perspective. I had an absolute blast talking to you about, um, well, I mean everything, but like particularly your uh, your take on some of the different acting strategies and like how you dive into your characters. It gave me an insight that I hadn't really thought of or considered before. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially not being versed in acting really myself, Like, I didn't know it was frowned upon to, like, dive into your own emotions kind of thing uh, for some actors. It's subjective. It's all subjective, you know? Everyone is going to have a technique that works better for them and not for others. But I love learning new things, and that was a perspective I hadn't heard before. So thank you very much. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. That was really fun. And now I can't wait to hear this song about creativity. All right. If you've made it this far, thank you for listening. Let us know your thoughts on tickling in the comments below. Is it a harmless potential alternative punishment or a horribly traumatic experience for children? Anyway, you ponder that while Kelly serenades us with her song On and On. For the world used our hearts as a filter for everything It left us desperately grabbing at ways we could heal So when we were older, our bodies were walls to a home In this place we imprisoned our minds and our souls Reaching out with our hearts, but we'd hit one and steal Sand, sand, a flood, those years and those months Trying to stay open and closed all at once Wall to One day you heard it, 
one gentle knock on the door But this light packed a punch that broke through to your core With its arms reaching in you were dying to fall It wrapped you in warmth It licked all your wounds It lifted you so high that you thought you grew The feeling of sprinting when you were just starting to crawl Finding something that made sense to you Finally something to dive into Filled with hope Left behind all your lows Life on and on it goes Then one day this light It pushed you away Pull back and leave through the same wounded came. You gripped it so tightly, you held on with all that you had. You couldn't give up, but you'd already lost. You wouldn't let go, you remembered the cost and had to believe something beautiful couldn't be bad. But when all of the light that you clenched in your fist disappears Open your hand cause what's left is there's no loss to fear Anything could change that you Life on and on it goes Life on and on it goes Life on and on it goes